In a world of what are yous, welcome to the place where the answer is always human. My name is Natalie and you're listening to Some Kind of Brown, a podcast about mixed and multiracial life, current events, and ways to build the best life by a southern girl who's trying to figure it out for herself. Hello again, wonderful people. It's National Native American Heritage Month, and I was honored to have our next guest join me today to talk about straddling racial and ethnic lines when you have indigenous ties. I'm not going to say much before we get into it, other than that I hope you enjoy listening to part one of our conversation as much as we did recording it. Alright everyone and welcome back to another episode. We are back. It is now Native American Heritage Month and I have a very special guest with me today. Hi everyone. Um, my name is Tristan Oganarak Morgan. Uvanga Oganarak Oganagamiranga. I am um Anibok, Alaska Native. I live and work out of Anchorage, Alaska, where I create contemporary Anibok art. Yes, and she sells prints that are really cool looking. I've seen a few of them on Twitter, which is actually where I found you. Yeah, yeah, that's generally where a lot of people find me. And a recent, a lot of people, like local people, have been finding my Twitter and telling me about it. And I'm like, please don't talk to oh, me. Oh, no. <laughs> You're getting recognized. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I was at a concert not too long ago. And this guy is like, I don't know, his friend or something like that was belligerent. And I was like, leave us alone. And he was like, I follow you on Twitter. And I was like, what? What does that mean? That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> Oh, now that tweet I saw makes a lot more sense. I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> you had someone. <laughs> yeah, that was completely out of context. Yeah, I just tweeted that specifically for him. So I was like, I hope he sees me. I hope he unfollows me. <laughs> because why would you say that to someone and expect to like, oh, okay, you follow me on Twitter. Now I'll treat you better than how you're treating me. That's not how it works. Oh my goodness. So he was trying to hit on you or... I don't know. He wasn't trying to hit on me. It was more so like, I respect you and your culture. So why are you treating me like crap? First of all, you're being a dick. So I'm not going to be nice to you just because you follow me on Twitter and somehow respect my culture that way. Oh my gosh. That can be a downside to being recognized, I think. I should have been like, ma'am, this is a Wendy's. (laughs) Really what I should have been. There are some people from my hometown who listen. I'm going to do an episode probably really soon about growing up under the Confederate flag. And I super hope I don't see anybody. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Especially now. I don't know. I feel like there's a lot more fear of people reacting to that. Mm -hmm. I bought that uh, Caucasian shirt. That's the the Redskins logo, but has the white man on it. Oh, yeah. And Alaska is very conservative, but it's also very socialist. But it's not. Uh, conservative, like Christian conservative, or just like culturally conservative? Culturally, and we're we're red state, but I don't know, just based off of people that I've talked to, I think we have a very large, first of all, a very large liberal community, very leftist, mm. but we are now starting to get into this idea of we need to start voting because all of the older Republicans are controlling the state. <laughs> Yeah, so we're very conservative, but like we have a large group of leftists, socialists kind of coming up and implementing these ideas into our local government. It's really interesting seeing how we are very socialist on a grassroots level. But once we start getting up to state level, oil starts coming into it. Oh, that's always where it is, where the money is. 
Exactly. So once we start talking about oil, that's when things get very conservative. I mean, that's definitely the main reason why we're a red state. I don't know. I think ours has more to do with the fact that I live in the Bible Belt. I don't know. if Yeah. Yeah. uh, Very, very, very conservative Christian. A lot of fear mongering around the politics in that as well. You can sway a lot of the votes just by saying, I'm pro-life. And then like the rest of your platform can be absolutely terrible, but people will vote for you. Yeah. But there's a group of young people who are similarly coming up at the grassroots level and trying to push back against some of those things that are happening. So kind of similar. Yeah. I think especially with the political climate now, there's a lot more need to push back. I think it's uh, it's just more visible. I think all the things that people were kind of complacent about because it wasn't out in the open are now just being exposed. So people were kind of like closeted racists and now people feel free to say things out loud. You have people having these crazy rallies and because of our current political leadership, it's kind of inspired a lot of people to speak their minds in a way that isn't always exactly great. (laughs) Yeah, and you get a lot of people who like, now that we can be racist out in public again, Mm -hmm. and we're not going to suffer any consequences for it, which is true. I mean, it's always been true, but I think it's been just more more apparent that pretty much anyone can have a platform, no matter how ridiculous or radical their ideas are. Mm -hmm. And definitely that fear-mongering aspect, too. That definitely happens a lot up here. I don't go to church personally, but I do go for my mom because she asked us to go to church. So we'll go to church for her. But the church that she goes to has been proving itself to be more and more conservative yeah. and more exclusive. This morning was like just so uncomfortable. We were just sitting there like, can't believe we're, we're here. And we kept looking at my mom and she kept laughing it off. Me and my sister were looking at my mom and we're like, mom, you need to go somewhere else. Like, <laughs> the church does not care about your life. We can tell you that much now. Because like they made a comment about like, immigrants, and no. um, he was like, "So all of us in here are Americans," and we're like, "Uh, I guess, yeah." And um, he's like, "Well, I hope everyone in here is Americans." And I was like, "Oh my gosh, <laughs> run!" Yeah, I was like, "This is a this is a little bit more passive aggressive than a lot of people have been lately." But I know this rhetoric, and I'm just gonna hop out of this one. I came from a church like that. My mom and my sisters, I guess, still go to that church. I don't go. I walked out of quite a few services when I just couldn't handle the rhetoric. Nobody's pushed me to go back anymore. So I made some clear choices and stances. And I think my family's tired of fighting me on those, but mm-hmm. I'm familiar with those. But we have a Confederate monument in the middle of downtown of my hometown where I live still. And for a solid, it felt like a year, probably not. But you know when Charlottesville happened and all the talk about the Confederate monument started hitting the headlines? Mm-hmm. We had a group of people who were outside the Confederate monument almost every day waving Confederate flags around this Confederate monument that is a known lynching site. It was a known lynching site. And I was driving to work because I used to work downtown. And I will never forget the day that I had to stop at the red light right at the Confederate monument. And I I look different. I don't look necessarily white. And this guy just approached my car with his Confederate flag and started waving it at me super aggressively. Oh, God. I was like, okay. The light can turn green now, anytime. Oh my gosh. That was a short moment where everyone was really focused on Confederate statues. I think 
I don't think we stopped focusing on it, but I think we shifted our focus because there's a lot of other things happening now too. I think it was just the beginning. Yeah, yeah. It was like the tension was building. Mm -hmm. The tension is still building. We haven't broken that tension yet, but it's getting there. And there's so much anxiety everywhere and on both sides and everywhere in between and everywhere outside of it and it's weird and it's so weird that like people were so transfixed on these monuments and on preservation of confederate history and in my head i'm like why would you want to be linked to slavery and lynching and exploiting human lives i don't understand why are you so proud of your history to where that's okay i can't wrap my head around that the strangest thing is they don't see it that way They see themselves as standing up for their ancestors who fought against a government who was trying to dictate how they lived. And that's how they see it. And they don't under they don't make that connection that the whole Confederate movement was to keep slaves. And for some reason, there's this really weird cognitive dissonance between those two things and people on that side don't connect the two. But it's very interesting being on both sides of kind of straddling these two worlds because I am part white and then part other things. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a very interesting time to be multiracial. And I know that you probably experienced similar things too. Oh yeah. Um, my aunt and uncle went to Trump's inauguration. So. Oh. Yeah. That was interesting. My white side of the family is very conservative. They're down in Texas. So is mine. So we're in the same boat. My Yeah, my family was in that little boat too. My great-grandparents both had farms, both worked on farms in Oklahoma and Missouri region. So definitely feel that for having very conservative white family and then being so... They consider these things very radical. But in my head, I'm like, but it's just human decency. That cognitive dissonance is heavy, especially right now. Like people don't want to be held responsible for things that they didn't directly do. Yeah. And I think people, they just don't want to be blamed for these things. And it's like, no one's blaming you for these things. People are just saying you uphold the system and you are benefiting from it. So what are you going to do about it? And the white side of your family is your dad's side, right? Yeah, which is really interesting because I think if it was swapped, I think I would have grown up a lot differently because my family is very matriarchal. So my whole mom's side of the family, like the most prominent people in my lives are Native women. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, where all of my art is centered around, where all of pretty much my entire personality, my confidence, my compassion, literally everything that makes me a Native woman. And specifically, a lot of people don't really uh, take this into mind, but I do consider myself a non-binary woman. I do identify as a woman, but at the same time, those lines blur a little bit. That's something that's still in conversation with myself and trying to explain that. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) But anyways, I did have, you know, very prominent Native women in my life. Having that part of my family, I don't think it had as much of an effect on me as it would have if it was swapped. I can see that. In my own family, both of my parents are the youngest in the family, and they're both like whoopsie children, so there's like distance between them and the next child up. Yeah. But my dad's side of the family, that is, for those of you who've heard the show before, we've had some recent discoveries in the last week. I'm not only Eastern Band Cherokee, but I am also significantly Choctaw on my dad's side, Mississippi Band of Choctaw, and... Black, we don't know what part of Africa our family came from, unfortunately. But that side of the family, my dad's side, is very matriarchal. Mm -hmm. And growing up, when I was little, we had a lot of contact with that side of the family. We were always over at someone's house. Someone was always cooking. I was exposed to those kinds of cultures. 
my second cousin, Mansfield, who is the person I'm going to to rediscover the Choctaw and Cherokee parts of myself. He actually came to visit when we were very young and took us to powwows and kind of exposed my brother and I, because we're the oldest, to a little bit of the culture. And so I got a taste of that. But as my dad's family started dying off, we had less and less contact with that side of his family. So I didn't have those matriarchal figures in my life to kind of anchor me into the culture. Mm -hmm. So it's it's very interesting. And I envy people who kind of have that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And that's seen a lot in a lot of different Native cultures, you know, a lot of them are very matriarchal. And I think a lot of people are recognizing that a lot of our customs and stuff like that, our cultures across the board are carried down by women. Just that focus on it, it not having that connection, like it, it can be, it can be really difficult, especially because like how you said, you didn't have that to, to ground you. Because I know that I have friends and family mm-hmm. who are of my region who are disconnected. And it's because the native women have disconnected them like with my dad too uh once my parents got divorced he was kind of cut off of the family like they'll still talk to him but it's really interesting how much of an impact and how much gatekeeping they do i can understand that a little bit my parents are divorced as well yeah so you understand that it's hard to kind of be especially in the middle of that Mm -hmm. as a child while you still have both identities it's like that I wouldn't say it's like fractured or anything like that, but you kind of have to start doing your own work and navigating that sort of split identity, especially with being multiracial, multiethnic, and then also having parents who are divorced. It's hard. It's hard to juggle all of that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's why I started this podcast. One of the reasons, at least, because I, in my mid Am I still in my mid-twenties? Is 27 mid-twenties still? I don't know. I might be in my late twenties. I'm not saying that again. <laughs> yeah, no, you can say mid-twenties. <laughs> in my twenties. Um, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just now kind of reconnecting with different parts of myself, exploring what that means because I just did not have the guidance. I had all of the curiosity, all of the yearning to be a part of it. But if you don't really have that connection, that person who's going to bring you in and teach you these things, it's very, very difficult to stay connected or feel connected to any of the cultures that you come from. So I've definitely had to do a lot of the work on my own to have the knowledge that I have now. And any of the knowledge I want to gain in the future. Yeah. You basically have to become your own native auntie. <laughs> like you're you're your own native auntie, so <laughs> good luck. <laughs> Especially with biracial. It's like it's not necessarily that you're like switching between the two, but like sometimes depending on the certain setting, like you might be talking about your for me specifically, talking about your whiteness and then talking about your nativeness and then like talking about both at the same time. And it's really difficult for people of like one ethnicity or one race to grasp their head around it because you're both. Right. You're not more one or the other. I had this conversation with my coworker, her husband is is native, half native actually, so he's also biracial, the same as me. And she wanted me to tell him about what my my Anna Marie, my great aunt Marie would tell me, and she still like tells me this, and she would say, you know, you're not half white and half native, you're full native and full white. That I kind of started carrying with me more recently because that's kind of how I describe myself to people. I'd be like, oh, I'm half native. And I've really started to like steer clear of that half thing. When people tell me, I'll be like, yeah, no, I'm half white. I am a native woman. 
I function as a native woman. That's who I am. It's really interesting, especially when people are like, oh, like you are ashamed of your white side. And it's like, no, I'm not ashamed of my white side. I just don't really have anything that like grounds me on my white side, except for my aunt and uncle who went to Trump's inauguration. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty big anchor, I guess. <laughs> oh, yeah, it feels like it. You definitely feel it. Yeah, that was an interesting time, especially now. They don't really, they don't not support me as an artist. I think they don't really understand it. They don't understand a lot of what I do. And they don't really talk to me anymore either because like I'm going to be really obnoxious about these things because I've been very like, I've been very apathetic, very, you know, quiet about things for a really long time. And also because they just never talked about it. Mm. But no, the 2016 elections came along. They're very vocal about them, about who they were supporting. And it was really weird seeing my white side of the family as racist as they are. I can imagine it felt like a little bit of a betrayal. Yeah, it did. It was was just weird because I'm like, these are people who have loved me and supported me my entire life, but they're supporting someone who doesn't care about my life. How can you support someone who doesn't care about my life and say that you still love me? Like, those two things don't connect. Mm -hmm. It's really hard. It's very interesting that we have that in common because my family, my mom's side of the family lives mostly in Texas and in Michigan, both in very conservative parts. And before I stopped going to church and made that decision on my own and that kind of thing, I became Catholic and they are very uh, Protestant. So I got a little bit disowned for that. But there's always been this point of contention between me and my mom's family because I've always growing up been curious and never afraid to speak my mind. And I always had questions and I would call people out if I if they said something inappropriate. And I think I always made that side of her family uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I think that just got worse as I got older. So they say they love me too, but we don't talk. And it's probably best that we don't for my mental health at least because nobody wants to be feeling like they have to fight their own family for their right to exist, you know? Yeah, and there's that that responsibility that you have to call out your family. And it's really it can be really emotionally draining too. Mm-hmm. I don't think people realize that. And yeah, I want to be able to call out my family and fight them on these things, but one it's going to be all emotions. It's going to be very reactionary, especially when you're talking with your family about politics. Right. And when you're talking about things that are like affecting your day-to-day life and your culture and your people, you can get really passionate about it. It can be just really draining to see someone who, you know, has been there your entire life and has told you that they loved you, that they support you and talking to them and having them be in a position where they you know, aren't supporting you. And it's hard because like you, you want to be able to like talk to them about it and be able to understand where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's so draining to where you kind of just avoid them altogether. (laughs) I completely understand. I already have to fight racists on Twitter and in my real life. I don't want to fight them in my family now. So like that meme where it's like, you don't call out your own white family for their racism. But I'm like, I feel it. I understand that activism can be considered worthless, but it's difficult to, to be able to talk to the family and be able to try and make them see you as a human rather than when they just see you as like just their family member and not an active member of in society and they can't like put two and two together i i yeah i don't know it's just really hard it, it really is and 
I it's hard to articulate to other people as well. And sometimes I think it's hard to process for yourself why you're feeling this way or having I don't think anyone should have to be in the position to start questioning your own family. Like that's that like hits you where it hurts, you know, that's not a very good situation for anyone to be in. But when you are biracial or multiracial and things like this happen, like I said, I was a very outspoken child and I never had to have that point where I was like, oh, now I have to talk to them about it. It was just always something that was talked about and I annoyed everyone about. Mm -hmm. But I can't imagine doing that like or having getting to the point where you're an adult and then having all of those things come out, I think would be even worse emotionally. Yeah, especially because I was so close to my family. And I think it also had to do with the fact my my grandpa um, was a very strong pillar in our family. And uh, when he passed away, everyone kind of broke apart. Mm. And then my aunt ended up passing away. And she was also another, you know, really strong person that brought us all together. Once we lost those people, it just like those connections were already weak. And then it was just the connections were made even weaker. Mm -hmm. Everyone's political stances started surfacing. I still don't talk to my family like I, I don't I don't think I've ever, ever like brought up something like that with them first of all because they're in Texas and I'm in Alaska so uh, <laughs> it's, it's not going to come up in person anytime soon right. uh, it's a bit easier for me to visit my family in Texas when I'm in Arkansas yeah yeah getting outside of Alaska is just expensive in general it's actually not that expensive anymore I say that but like since a lot of people are going in and out of Alaska it's gotten a lot cheaper but I mean, it's still really expensive to go down there. But like, I just, even on like social media, I just don't, I just don't engage with them because it, it is really draining. I'm already having to do this stuff in my community and I'm already having to do this like, you know, online. And a lot of people don't take online activism seriously either. But it, at the same time, I'm like, yeah, but I have all these people that are, you know, listening to me and whether like they're physical people or not, I still am putting myself out there and I don't, and it's a, I mean, it's not the same as like going out in the community and I definitely try and do that as much as possible, but switching from that and then going to family where it's, you're a lot more emotionally attached to that. Mm-hmm. Whereas like on like Twitter or like if you're protesting, yeah, those things can be very traumatic those can have a lot of effect on you and I'm not like dismissing anyone who who has you know gone through that but especially for like online activism just close your computer like put your phone down you're away from it yeah you can walk away from it yeah but you can't walk away from your family I mean you can walk away from your family but especially if they've been such a strong influencers in your life your entire life that's not going to happen right like I don't think people realize like it's not possible especially for like for a lot of families you're not going to just completely disown your family members especially if you didn't realize that they had these stances until you're you know 21 years old and you're like I don't know what I'm going to do <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing uh, my aunt and uncle are at Trump's inauguration um help <laughs> I'm just like sitting there like I I'm just going to ignore it and hope for the best <laughs> one else handles this because I am not emotionally prepared for this. I think dealing with that emotionally is different. So I grew up as a black sheep and expecting to be a black sheep. So it's hard for me to like, I'm always looking for a tribe 
I say in the sense of a place where I belong, not indigenous tribe sense, although I mean that as well, but I've never felt like I belonged. So I think they're two different kind of emotional coping mechanisms that are needed to develop in those situations. Yeah, it's it's interesting how like we had such similar families, but such different experiences, mm-hmm. especially like you, with you being as vocal as you. I was not vocal growing up. I was, but I was like selectively vocal, but I'm just a very quiet person in general, or I used to be. I say that now and people are like, Tristan, and I'm like, I, okay, I used to be really quiet. <laughs> I think a lot of, as I got older, I just got angrier about what was happening around me. I got more more self-aware and then I kind of just listened more. I listened more closely, I guess, than realized, you know, once these things start popping up and you kind of like put these puzzle pieces together, I don't know. I've seen like so many memes out there of just like, you know, when you finally hear the family gossip and you understand now and I'm like, <laughs> I, once I started like piecing the, the things together, I'm just like, oh my God, why did I not even notice this before? But I also had to do with the fact that I had whiteness to kind of help me settle in those situations. Mm-hmm. You know, like I was, you know, I was native, but I was also white. Yeah. So that, that was that whole like mentality. It's like, yeah, Tristan's native, but she's also white. So it was like, I always shifted towards that whiteness to kind of basically coddle me <laughs> growing up. I didn't, I kind of used that as like a, a crutch. And then I started, you know, realizing, especially growing up, how sometimes I was treated okay. And then my mom wasn't. And like, it was just, looking outside of myself and realizing, you know, where I stood in society and coming more self-aware and realizing what was happening around me because I was so like introverted and so focused on myself, which did does not help with your identity at all. Um, <laughs> I mean, you have to be somewhat introspective, but in order for you, for your identity to be really be solidified, you need those outside factors. Right. You need a community. So, yeah, exactly. So when I started like really trying to find myself and find my identity, that's when I started becoming more and more self-aware and being like, well, crap, I have all these responsibilities. Like I already have to, I had to take care of myself as an adult and now I have to take care of everyone around me. <laughs> like that was a while there to where I was like really mad that I had to do that to the point where I was like, you know, I I barely have a, a handle on myself and now I have all of these expectations that people put on me, but more so I put on myself. Yeah. And I like really struggled with that for like a, a, quite some time until I kind of forced myself to find strength in it instead and being less pessimistic, I guess, about the entire thing. It's very easy to be pessimistic about it sometimes. Yeah. And I don't know, I feel like Especially, I don't know, falling back on on my whiteness, it kind of humbled me. Especially growing up, I kind of was in that mentality where I was like, oh, like I'm being discriminated against because I'm too white. I took that personally. And then as I became more self-aware, I'm like, yeah, it makes sense why people would be prejudiced against me. And it's hard to kind of not take that personally. I think especially for mixed indigenous people, mixed anyone who's mixed with white kind of. You have to separate yourself from that internalized white supremacy where that victimhood that you kind of get into that mentality. It's hard and it's almost impossible. <laughs> I feel like a lot of, especially a lot of 
mixed people who are mixed with white and who are very white passing or white coded or just you know even people who are ambiguous you still have that foot in the door mm-hmm. in society and i i think a lot of people like they're just like oh but you're somewhere in between it's like no you're not in between you're able to get into those white spaces even if you're like kind of an outcast you're still in those spaces right you're still like accepted into that whereas like someone who is darker someone who's more visibly indigenous visibly black or brown that's they don't have that privilege of of at least being able to be in the space maybe not being accepted in the space but they can at least be in it and experience it and internalize it like how I did growing up I think some of what makes our experiences so opposite, despite having some similarities in our family, comes from where we grew up, from what we were talking about before we recorded. I didn't get to be white when I where I grew up. I am relatively white passing, and when I was blonde for a short period of time, I was definitely white passing, and people thought I was white, which was trippy. But it was the exact opposite experience, because the one-drop rule even though it's not legal or the standard anymore, very much so is in the mentality of people here still. So if you're one part black, you're black. Mm -hmm. I grew up as black and fought for my whiteness and fought for my indigenous identity and went through brief periods of time where I didn't want to be black or I didn't want to have the whiteness at all when I started learning more about history and then going back and forth between that I think uh, where you grow up can have a really big impact because you said where you grow up, you're almost immersed in your indigenous culture, Mm -hmm. whereas I'm pretty much immersed in mostly whiteness. I think that can cause a little bit of a different experience or mentality at least. Yeah, definitely. And I know that like my family is from a, a similar part of Texas. We're part of that Bi- Bible Belt, basically. But also my family moved out of that Bible Belt. I think also probably contributed. It wasn't like anything revolutionary since, but they ended up moving over to California, Southern California. So they're kind of, you know, in that setting. There's a lot more diversity. And also I think people are a little bit more open as opposed to being in the Bible Belt, being very pun intended, black and white. <laughs> yes. I mean, there's a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. And I think once they moved out of that, definitely kind of got out of that mentality. But at the same time, like they didn't understand, like even though that they were in a community that was more diverse, that they still benefited from being white. It's weird. It's such a weird like paradox to be in, mm-hmm. especially for us having similar family in the same region and that sort of thing, having such different experiences. And there's so many factors that play into it. It's really cool just finding differences, but also a lot of similarities, especially when coming with identity, because that was like something that I flip-flopped a lot a lot growing up too. And I think a lot of like multi, multi-ethnic, multi-racial people flip between identities growing up because they don't realize that you can be both. Mm-hmm. And especially because we live in a society that's very black and white and that ambiguous part is like not, it's hard to like pigeonhole you. And people want to pigeonhole you. Yeah. So when you say that you can be more than one thing and all of them are equal parts, it just like blows people's minds. Growing up, I was a part of my culture. I definitely could have been more because I didn't think it was that important. But once I started hitting my adolescent years, that's when I started kind of pushing my native side away because it was something that I was more so ashamed about. And that's because I started, again, becoming more self-aware, more realizing, you know, where I stand in society. 
And that's when I realized that that did not benefit me in where I was at. It only made things worse. <laughs> identifying as that. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't it wasn't like a as strong of a of a pillar in my identity as it is now. And I think that contributed to a lot of my insecurities. I mean, all teenagers are insecure, so that that's not saying anything. For sure. I mean, that's when you start trying to find out who you are, really, or start questioning it, at least. And once you bring, like, race and ethnicities into that, it starts getting really muddled. It's mm-hmm. There's a lot of overlap between, like, you just being a regular teenager and being insecure, and then you being insecure because of the social structure that you're in. I think the first time that I, like, really, it really hit home for me, I was in eighth grade. And I told my friends that I was Native. And uh, there was a few new people that I just met and I was just hanging out with. And um, some old friends from like elementary school, middle school. And I was going into high school. So I mean, this was like really important. I was trying to make friends, you know, trying to be more social and, and put myself out there. And I told someone that I was Native and he was like, what? I was like, yeah, no, I'm Anipok. And he was like, well, that sucks. I was like, what? what? What kind of response is that? Yeah. And he was like, well, that sucks for you. And I was like, what? I don't understand. Like, I, did- I didn't understand. I was like, why does that suck for me? That doesn't suck for me. It's pretty awesome. I also was kind of removed from that a little bit because we lived in Washington. Uh, so this is like, this was probably a few years into me being back in Alaska. So I was starting to be a little bit I wasn't really involved but I was a little bit more curious as soon as that happened that's when the when I started internalizing that and it kind of snowballed to the point where it wasn't really a part of my identity at all I didn't identify as white but I also didn't identify as native either I just kind of was existing I was just kind of floating (sighs) floating in racial ambiguity I've always been racially ambiguous and you know Without opening up another can of worms, uh, hair in the black community is a big thing, but I've always had my hair, or I had always had my hair relaxed since I was seven. Nobody bothered telling me the story behind Pocahontas, by the way, when I was little. And my little mildly brown self thought I was Pocahontas growing up. There are childhood pictures of me as Pocahontas, which I must find and destroy. The first time I got my hair relaxed, I remember skipping through the parking lot and watching my shadow and being like, finally, I'm Pocahontas. <laughs> <laughs> Which is terrible. Uh, but yeah, that's so, like, that's definitely opening up a can of worms. It's so, like, <laughs> layered. There's so many things, like, that contribute to that and also are wrong with that, but at the same time, you're yes. wild. So it's, like, it's so hard because it's not on you. It was on, you know, it was on the adults in your life, but at the same time, it's, like, they also didn't know that's what growing up I was like I loved Pocahontas because that was like one of the only like connections that I had. That was the same for me. It was the closest connection I had to that part that I knew as Cherokee and now know as Cher- uh, Choctaw as well. But that was my connection until I found out. Yeah, and it was weird, especially learning about that and like not letting people know how hardcore a fan I was of Pocahontas growing up. <laughs> but like it. You have to kind of talk about why, and it, it plays into that fact that there's not enough representation mm-hmm. 
out there to the point where we were holding on to you with this like story of a child victim. Yeah. Uh, because this was spoon fed to us as something that was reality. And we held on to it because there was nothing else out there for us. Especially growing up as like as a, a native girl and not having anything to represent who you are and you pretty much are just grasping at straws. Well, then you start grasping at Katara from Avatar The Last Airbender until in Night Shyamalan makes a movie. <laughs> yeah, and then it's a white man coming up who's definitely brown. I mean, it's not my tribe at all, but I grasped at Katara growing up. I was when I was watching that, I was probably 15, 16, and I was like, aha, <laughs> closer. We're getting closer. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, because they, they based it off of Inuits. Mm-hmm. Um, that also was like I could see parts of my culture in that. And so I grasped onto that and held I still hold on to Katara. I will I will not let go of Katara. <laughs> it's just like, that's I could we can have an entire other podcast about my feelings about Avatar the Last Airbender. Um, uh, well, until they make something Choctaw related, I'm going to also cling to Katara, so you have to share. Yeah. <laughs> I'll share. I'll share. <laughs> okay, I promise I was going somewhere with talking about ambiguity in my hair, but it wouldn't be me if I didn't derail my own train of thought with Pocahontas and the magnificent Katara. You'll have to tune in to the next episode for that and more of the amazing Agnarok. You can find both their social media links and art information in the show notes. And you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at somekindofbrown. In the next few days, I will be opening a Facebook page and a Facebook group for all of us to kind of share our stories and talk about mixed race issues or the episodes. So look out for that information on my social media in the next few days. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave a rate and review on iTunes. Your feedback is really important to me and really helps the show. Thank you to Purple Planet for the use of their song, Love Life. And I'll see you in two weeks with some more Shades of Brown.